Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. This episode is sponsored by the City of Camrose. Now I'm going to be looking at the fascinating history of Camrose, which is a community located just south of Edmonton. It's actually a really cool community that I've been to many times. And as I go through the history, I won't be going in a chronological order, but instead going through various aspects of its history. I'll also be having interviews with the mayor and some vintage audio. So let's begin. Indigenous History For centuries, long before Europeans began to arrive in the area, the area of Camrose was primarily the home of the Cree people. The indigenous Cree roamed through the area following the herds of bison that had moved through the land for eons. The area was rich in fur and was a common place for both the indigenous and early explorers and traders with the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company to pass through in order to get furs for sale. One of the first settlers to the area was also an indigenous man named Peaukis, who was a Cree man that had been born south of Fort Pitt in the mid-19th century. His son Louis was born northeast of Camrose in 1872, on the prairie, and the family would live in the area for many years. While he was likely born in the mid-19th century, legend says that while living in his cabin north of the CPR tracks in Camrose, he recorded his 125th birthday. While this is highly unlikely, it would put his birth year as 1811, and it would also make him three years older than the oldest recorded person in history. True or not, Piocus left a legacy of many stories and is regarded as one of the first settlers in the Camrose area. Camrose itself sits on Treaty 6 land. The Founding of Camrose Following the indigenous, few people stayed in the area, mostly moving through instead of settling. That would change with Ole Bakken, who had the first home on the present townsite of Camrose. Built in 1893, it was a crude shack measuring 10 feet by 14 feet in size, built of poplar logs with a sod roof. It had one door and one small window, and all you would find inside would be a stove, table, chairs, a bunk, and an oil lamp. It may have not been the best-looking house, but it was always open to anyone coming through, and he always kept his home clean, and his baked bread was considered to be a local delicacy. Ole would occupy this home until 1905, when he left Camrose to live in Banff, where he died at the age of 60. During the first decade of the 20th century, many settlers were coming to the area. Often they got off the train in Wetaskiwin and went out from there. As they traveled, the buildings of future cameras became a popular stopping place. As people came through, some chose instead to stay, and a small hamlet called Stony Creek was formed. Duncan Sampson, who had come from Little Current, Ontario, built a small store and lived upstairs. The store was located on the west side of Future Camrose, which was being surveyed at the time thanks to the increase in visitors to the area. Lots were not on sale yet, but that would happen in October. 
By the end of the year, with lots being sold, two hotels were built, called the Windsor and Arlington, and a name was chosen for this new town site. It would be called Sparling, after Reverend Dr. Sparling of Winnipeg. So how did Sparling become Camrose? Well, I'll get to that. By June 1905, the railway grade was completed to Sparling, which included a bridge over Stony Creek. From that point, a train would come from Wetaskiwin three times a week, and the community was ready to explode in size. A lumber yard would be built, several businesses would be opened, including a hardware store, a jewelry store, an insurance office, and a drugstore. The first elevator would be built, and Constable Blue Smith would also be the first police officer in the area. On May 4, 1905, the community would be incorporated as Sparling, with F.P. Layton serving as the first overseer for the community. An issue began to arise with the name Sparling. Postal authorities were often confused with Sparking Alberta, Sperling Manitoba, and Sterling Alberta. To keep the confusion from becoming worse, the decision was made to rename the community as Camrose. Unlike many communities, the origin of its name is not quite known. It's likely, though, that the name comes from Camrose in Wales, and was simply selected from a British postal guide in 1905. As for the name itself, it either comes from the Welsh words of Camrose, which means crooked moor, or the anglicized form of Camros, which means crooked heather. Either way, the name is stuck and the community was ready to grow. On December 11, 1906, the community became a town, and Leighton would continue as leader of the community, this time with the title of mayor. Camrose quickly became a railroad hub, and with lines running to Edmonton and Calgary, as well as communities such as Beggarville, Stettler, Drumheller, and Wetaskiwin, it was ready to explode. By 1914, the community was receiving 12 passenger trains a day. When the first Grand Trunk Pacific train came through the community, Premier Ernest Rutherford was on the train and enjoyed a huge welcome from the community as he disembarked with Attorney General C.W. Cross and Minister of Agriculture Duncan Marshall. The Camrose Lutheran College in 1910, Norwegian settlers had arrived in Camrose and established a new school called the Camrose Lutheran College. It all began on June 29, 1910, when representatives from six of the Norwegian Lutheran congregations, along with three pastors, met in Camrose to look at building a school for the young people of the Norwegian Lutheran faith. Interestingly, this was not the only group of Norwegian Lutherans planning the same thing in the area. The two groups came together at two meetings on August 9th and 10th of that year, and the Alberta-Norwegian Lutheran College Association was created. Later in the fall, a decision was made to build a school for the fall of 1911, because, as they felt, how could you conduct school without buildings? Until the school was ready, classes were held at the new Lutheran churches located in Camrose. The other issue was where the students would be housed and fed. For this, Reverend T.T. Carlson came forward as Vice President of the Association and worked with J.P. Tanberg, who had been appointed by the Church in the United States, and they worked to find accommodations. That accommodation was found when the Heather Bray Hotel was rented for $200 per month, roughly $4,700 today. The first school year of the Camrose Lutheran College began on October 2, 1911, with classes in two churches. Construction had also begun on the new building to be located on the outskirts of Camrose. The cornerstone for the building was laid down on July 1, 1911, and the concrete foundation had been completed by the time the first school year began in those churches. 
The structure itself was put up in the summer and fall of 1912 and was ready to open for the second academic year on October 21, 1912. On June 26, 1913, the building was dedicated with a huge ceremony. The first building that would make up the campus would be the old main building, which would become the Founders Hall. The building stands to this day and is one of the earliest examples of wood construction for a post-secondary institution in Alberta. On June 13, 1977, it would be designated as an Alberta Registered Historic Resource. The old main building would be the only building on the campus for three decades until the Canadian Army left Camrose after the Second World War, and the old Army Barracks building was purchased, remodeled, and turned into a gymnasium and dormitory for the men. The building would exist for many years before it was dismantled. In 1952, a second permanent building was built west of Old Main, with it being dedicated on November 23, 1952. In 1958, the Lutheran College was granted junior college status, and in the fall of that year, the first junior college class enrolled. A new classroom building was built that year and opened on October 26. In 1959, the school began offering university work as an affiliate of the University of Alberta, while adding a second year of the university transfer program in 1969. In 1985, it would become the first private university in Alberta when it began to offer its first Bachelor of Arts degrees. On July 1, 2004, the Lutheran College became the Augustana University College after it merged with the University of Alberta to become a separate faculty and satellite campus of the university. Today, the campus is home to over a thousand students who can enroll in over 30 areas of study, from science to business management to the fine arts and humanities. In addition, there are 56 full-time faculty members and students come from more than 15 countries around the world. The campus also has an Indigenous Students Services that provide a wide range of programs and services that are intended to increase, support and enhance the experience and success of Indigenous students. This includes an Indigenous student mentor program, smudging on campus, and celebrations and gatherings. Chester Ronning, Canada's first ambassador to China, was a student at the school and would serve as its principal from 1927 to 1942. He would also receive the Order of Canada in 1972. Three alumni of the Augustana campus also competed for Canada at the Salt Lake City Olympics in 2002 in cross-country skiing, speed skating, and biathlon. Another notable alumni for the school is Dina Hinshaw, who received her undergraduate degree at the school, once it was the Augustana University College, in 1997. She would go on to earn her medical degree, and in 2019 was appointed as Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health. She would become very notable during the COVID-19 outbreak thanks to her nearly daily media events, and Global News called her the trusted face for Albertans calmly delivering the facts as cases of COVID-19 are confirmed in our province. Bertha Fowler attended the Camrose Lutheran College and would eventually be awarded the Alberta Order of Excellence in 2006, thanks to her commitment to Camrose and various political accomplishments. This clip comes from her induction video. Most of my life has been spent in our family business, which is publishing a weekly newspaper. It was an opportunity to serve the community. And so that's what we feel is our mission, to boost the community. What keeps one 
or gets one into volunteering is uh, an interest in the world about them. I think if you are caring, you can't help but become involved and to make a better world. In the 60s, 70s, people were starting to uh, think that uh, women needed to have doors opening for them in uh, areas other than caretakers in the home. There seemed to be a movement that, okay, we better put a token woman on some of these boards to satisfy the feminists. And so I've often thought of myself as being a token woman. I never felt that I was treated as anything but an equal. I was treated with respect. I never felt uncomfortable. Following me, there were more than one woman on, on boards, and it gradually changed until sometimes uh, you have more women than men on a board. A lot of people tell older people, you shouldn't be doing anything anymore. You've earned the right to stop doing those things now. Frankly, I don't personally believe that. I believe as long as you have something to give, keep on giving it. And as a matter of fact, it helps you keep on keeping on. <laughs> Here's Mayor Norm Mayer. You can get your fourth four degrees in certain, are you four years uh, for degree granting in, in certain uh, courses from the university? Or you can take one or two, three years here and transfer into Edmonton to complete those courses. If it, you know, if it's something that's not available in that particular uh, uh, choice of, of uh, career option. Uh, Augustana location, uh, we have the and Peter Lougheed uh, Theater, which uh, houses somewhere just over 500 seats and provides ongoing uh, cultural and uh, educational uh, entertainment, again, for the community. The Camrose Fairgrounds World War II the Second World War was a time when the world was changing forever. Not only were communities sending their men and women away to serve in the various armed forces, many places in Canada trained those soldiers. In Camrose, the fairgrounds had been the place for the agricultural fair since 1908, when the town of Camrose purchased the land for the Camrose Agricultural Society. These fairs were always looked forward to by residents, helping to break up the hard work of the spring and summer and letting everyone get together and socialize. That tradition would continue until 1940, when the grounds were taken over by the Canadian Army, who had started using the fairgrounds as a training facility. The Camrose Normal School had closed in 1938, and had been left vacant for several years until the Army came along. This old building became the headquarters for the Army base that was set up in Camrose in 1940. On the fairgrounds themselves, ten H-shaped huts were built for the trainees, and the grandstand was dismantled to make room for a parade ground. New buildings were erected to operate as mess quarters, a medical building, and stores room. Until the end of the war, the army would occupy the grounds, but after the army left, following the Second World War, 
a number of buildings were left on the property to be used by the town and the Agricultural Society. In 1948, the new barns would be filled with livestock exhibits, and by 1949, a boys' and girls' camp was initiated. The Royal Canadian Legion obtained one of those huts and moved it to town to serve as the new home of the Legion. Other buildings were disposed of, but some buildings, like the drill hall, were left on the fairgrounds. Another interesting aspect of Camrose and its role during the Second World War comes from the heavy brass bell that was used by the Rotary Club to call members to order. This bell was used on the HMCS Camrose, a Corvette ship that was named for Camrose and launched on November 16, 1940. It served for the entire Second World War and was used as an ocean escort on convoys from St. John's to Iceland until February of 1942. In June of that year, it was assigned to the Western Local Escort Force. On January 4, 1944, it was involved in the sinking of the German U-boat U-757, which went down on that day, taking 49 Germans with it. The bell was taken as memento after the ship was decommissioned on July 22, 1945. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I've spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Notable Buildings The Camrose Feed Mill was built in 1910 by Georgeson & Company Limited, a wholesale grocery firm out of Calgary. The warehouse was one of the many constructed by the company and its construction helped Camrose become a wholesale centre for the entire region. The fact that many branch lines came into Camrose helped with this and the goods in the building would go out across central Alberta. In 1938, the building was bought by the provincial government to serve as a liquor store. 
It would operate as such until 1944 when the Alberta Seed Growers Cooperative Limited bought it, which resulted in an additional superstructure and machinery being added onto the building. In 1967, it was sold and turned into the Feed Mill Dining Lounge. It would be recognized as an Alberta Provincial Historic Resource on May 31, 1985. Today, the building remains one of the few remaining wholesale facilities in the original Warehouse District of Camrose. The Camrose Public Library is one of the most beautiful public libraries that you will see anywhere in the prairies. The building itself was constructed in 1908 and was the home of the Canadian Club of Camrose, providing the businessmen of Camrose a place to play billiards, socialize, read, and talk about the current events of the day. Interestingly, the Camrose Canadian Club was incorporated through an act of the Alberta Legislature on March 5, 1908. The club was an early lesson in civic cooperation and was described as doing quite a bit to build the reputation of Camrose citizens. In a copy of Immigration Number of the Camrose Canadian, printed on May 6, 1909, the club was described as follows. One of the finest sites in the town was secured and a building erected that would be the credit to a town many times larger than Camrose. The first floor was devoted to billiards and pool, and three very handsome tables were purchased. Here the men of the town, both young and old, while away many an idle hour, engaged in one of the most fascinating and graceful games that human ingenuity has yet evolved for recreation of fatigued humanity. It then goes on to describe the second floor. The second floor was splendidly finished and fitted up as the club's reading room. Here a spacious fireplace, pictures, piano, and easy chairs give a touch of real home life. It also states that under no circumstances is liquor allowed on the premises, not even for public banquets. The building served as the home of the club until 1918 when it was sold and the club was disbanded. It was then occupied by an Alberta Treasury Branch office and also served as the provincial courthouse. In 1957, the building was sold and moved one block to begin its life as the Camrose Public Library. On January 24, 1978, it was designated as a provincial historic resource. The Bailey Theatre is a truly remarkable place because so few of these types of buildings are still around. It was originally built in 1908 and is one of the oldest existing purpose-built theatres in all of Alberta. The theatre was established by Camille David, who was also a partner in the first hotel in the community, and it was financed by him as a place for local and visiting performers to come out. Over the years, the building would showcase musical performances, theatre productions, silent movies, vaudeville shows, and more. In those first years, it would see the Toronto Glee Club perform, along with several plays, musicals, and dances. It would be sold to Stan Bailey in 1913 and renamed the Bailey Theatre in 1921. During those early years, the theatre would see the Georgia Minstrels, the Winnipeg Kitties, and the San Carlo Opera Company, all of whom signed the walls in the dressing room and left messages for other performers. Today, the theatre still has the pressed metal panelled auditorium walls and ceiling, wood trusses supporting the ceiling, and the stage that so many have performed on. The building was made a municipal historic resource on January 24, 2000. Here's Mayor Norm Mayer. Again, the Billy Theatre is a historical type of structure. It provides entertainment, uh, and it, it was established uh, years ago as a theatre. And, uh, of course, the Times took it out because it's a small capacity. It's about 200 people, 100 and maybe about 180. Uh, again, it couldn't survive as a theater. 
So it sold off. Landmark Cinemas wound up owning it. Then they sold it off to the Bailey Theatre Society, and who have again restored it and brought it back to its original theater concept. And as I say, they do uh, put on plays there. They have entertainment in the form of local bands uh, and other fundraising activities where they can maybe host about 200 people in the facility. And it, uh, it's history again, as far as the city of Cameron is concerned. And uh, works well to uh, add to our cultural activities, our cultural basis as to what has been over the years and what can be as we move forward in the renovated uh, structures. The Camrose Normal School is a three-and-one-half-story brick building that dates to 1915, when it was opened by the provincial government. The decision to build the school was made in 1912, and it was built between 1913 and 1914. George Peter Smith, the MLA for the area, came to Camrose on July 11, 1912 to announce the new school at the largest public gathering ever held in Camrose to that time. It was to be the second teacher training facility in Alberta, with Calgary having the first back in 1906. Until the school could be built, the normal school used two rooms at the John Russell School. When the school opened in its temporary location in 1912, it had 20 students, made up of 16 women and 4 men. The first class would graduate at Christmas of 1912. The formal opening of the building that stands to this day would happen on October 8, 1915. For the next 23 years, it would serve as the place of education of teachers, who themselves would go out and educate students across the province. C. Fred McNally would be the founding principal of the school and was a pioneer educator in Alberta. He would eventually go on to become the Deputy Minister of Education under Premier William Bible Bill Aberhart. McNally would also go on to become the Chancellor of the University of Alberta from 1946 to 1952. During the normal school's years of operation, thousands of teachers would receive their training until the school was turned over to the Canadian Army. It was made a Provincial Historic Resource on March 15, 1977. The Camrose and District Museum If you're a regular listener to Canadian History X, then you know that I absolutely love local museums. I feel they are often better than the larger museums and provide a more personal experience as you discover the past of a community. The Camrose and District Museum was officially opened on Canada's centennial birthday, July 1, 1967, and is now home to thousands of artifacts from the past of the community. Unlike many local history museums that are only a small building with some items, the Camrose and District Museum features several buildings of which I will cover here. The main building of the facility contains the Della Robson Archival Gallery, a reading room, and a museum library. On the grounds you will find a replica of the 1907 Camrose Fire Hall, which also served as the administrative offices of the town. The replica was opened at the museum grounds in 1981. The Camrose Canadian Building is another replica building that shows what the early newspaper office was like. In its first two years it was known as The Mail, before becoming the Camrose Canadian in 1908. Inside the building you will find a printing press and a linotype machine, both of which are in working order. The blacksmith shop was built on the grounds in 1993 out of wood from old granaries in the area, and today has a working forage with demonstrations available to the public. You can see what life was like for the soldiers who lived on the fairgrounds during the Second World War by touring the Old Timers Hut, which was an army hut at the Army Training Facility. 
The building still stands in its original location and has not moved since the Second World War. Earlier in this episode, I also talked about Ole Bakken, and you can see the type of building he lived in by checking out the log hut on the museum grounds. The replica hut was built in 2005 in honor of Ole Bakken and features exactly what it would have been in his home over 125 years ago. On the same note of homes, the pioneer log house on the grounds was built by the Thor Groove family in 1898, made entirely of logs. The house was first located near Amina and was quite small. Over the years, it would be renovated and expanded on several times. It would move further to the east in 1903 using two bobsleds pulled by two teams of six horses. The final move for the building would happen in 1979 when it was moved to the museum grounds, restored and furnished. It was opened with furnishings donated by the community on September 1st, 1980. Here's Mayor Norm Mayer. Well, again, the Centennial Museum is uh, the structure that was built uh, for the Centennial year, and it houses uh, the artifacts of history uh, for the city of Cameras as well as surrounding area. Very educational. Uh, the, the agricultural portion of the display uh, dates back many years to the single bottom plow that uh, was used many years ago and uh, I keep reminding people when they want to go see it that it reminds me of hard work because I used to use those things <laughs> but today's world uh, so many people our youth uh, have no idea how things operated and, and the way things were in those years so it's very educational and uh, gives a very uh, good outline of the years of involvement uh, into where we are today Again, a very interesting place to be the railway museum when you visit camros one unique museum that is definitely worth a visit is the Camrose Railway Museum and Park. In 1911, with Camrose booming, a third-class station was set up by the Canadian Northern Railway in the community. The third-class station was the third of four to be developed by architect Ralph Benjamin Pratt, which are all distinguished by their hip roof, which is unique to Canadian Northern Railway buildings. The importance of the station, and Camrose as a railway centre, is shown in the fact that the station was expanded in 1952, something that didn't typically happen by that point. Passenger service continued to fall in use, and by the 1980s it was dropped as a service at the station. The station would then close, but it would be resurrected and moved in 1992 to begin serving as a symbol of a bygone era, and an excellent museum in the community. Today, you can walk the railway museum grounds, visit the watchman's shed, and the bunkhouse. The depot also features the Canadian Northern Society's archives and a library and the Sparling Centre which features historic pictures of Camrose. You can also visit the track car storage shed and hear the stories of the people who worked maintaining the tracks and their machines. The park itself is a beautiful place that features a G-scale train, a Thomas the Tank engine and more moving along the route of the old Canadian Northern Railway built to scale. Here's Mayor Norm Mayer. When we first came to Camrose, which was 1963, it was a railway station. Uh, we had the CN train, passenger train that went through Camrose, and uh, it brought freight and took passengers. It was a typical railway station. But as times changed and the railway 
service was discontinued, uh, society, that's where this name comes from, it's the Railway Society, decided to maintain and restore this. And there's several other uh, stations along the line from here down to Drumheller, and even across in Saskatchewan. There's some societies where they have done this, and they've maintained the old station, uh, a replica, and uh, maintained the facility in such a way that it is used for lunches, it's used for gatherings, it's a small, small facility, but it's, it's unique in its method of, I guess, preserving the past insofar mm -hmm. as the railway station is concerned, even to the, the type of equipment and the uh, furniture that is there. The Big Valley Jamboree. When I was 15, I went to Camrose on a trip with my parents, a friend of mine, and my cousin. We went for an event, and it was a big one. It was the Big Valley Jamboree, and it continues to this day, serving as one of the biggest music festivals in all of Western Canada. In 1992, the owners of the Big Valley Jamboree in Craven, which is now called Country Thunder Saskatchewan, wanted to host a second festival in Alberta. They chose Big Valley because of the name, but also the geography of the area. In September of 1992, a concert was held in Big Valley that featured the Steve Miller Band, Sass Jordan, who appeared on the podcast back in May, and Brian Adams. Unfortunately, the 15,000 campers were met with a sloppy field of snow and mud as cold fall weather moved in. Brian Adams, a Canadian rock singer whose star has risen so high there isn't much his fans won't do to get close to him for just one night. They proved that this weekend. It was to be the biggest thing that ever happened in Big Valley. Rain or shine, the show was on. Trouble is, nobody counted on snow. The concert better be worth it. <laughs> for many, the rock and roll weekend was ruined. They're shutting it down, boys. 15,000 campers were bogged down in a soupy mess. On Monday, the sun broke on Big Valley, and the fans came back. Perhaps fewer of them, but still enthusiastic. And all of this clearly impressed the crowd from Edmonton and Calgary. This is excellent. I've never seen so many people together, and I wish this was my backyard. <laughs> Sass Jordan! In the end, the concert started 48 hours late. The weather was cool. They had to use wood chips to sop up the slough. And one of the five bands never made it. But the show was on. For 1993, it was decided that a new location needed to be found. At the same time, the Camrose Regional Exhibition was looking to revive its annual summer fair. These two things came together, and the Big Valley Jamboree was rebranded as a country music festival. The new festival was held for the first time in Camrose on the 1993 August Long Weekend. Since then, musicians and stars such as Toby Keith, Tim McGraw, Kevin Costner, Brad Paisley, Brooks and Dunn, Billy Ray Cyrus, and Reba McIntyre have played the festival. The festival now brings in $10 million a year to the Camrose economy, 
and the Canadian Country Music Association voted the Big Valley Jamboree as the best country music event of the year in 2001, 2004, 2006, and 2010. In all, it averages 25,000 people per day during the four-day festival. Here's Mayor Norm Mayer. Oh, Big Valley Jamboree, of course, uh, again, is a, an attraction that had some 25 years up until this year, of course, when it wound up getting cancelled. Uh, has been a great attraction to bring some 30-odd thousand people to our community for a, a festival uh, that has been very successful over the years. And uh, we're looking forward to that happening again next year with the uh, things getting back to normal. But again, it, it's, it's known for that type of entertainment uh, that isn't available elsewhere because this includes the camping sites as well, where lots of your entertainment is strictly come and go. Important Visitors Due to its proximity to Edmonton and its role as a hub for the railroad, Camrose would see several important visits from well-known Canadians. An early important visitor came on October 8, 1915, when Premier A.L. Sifton was on hand for the evening meeting at the Camrose Normal School. Another one came in 1920, when Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, just recently elected as Prime Minister, would visit Camrose in his private coach. The previous year, the Stettler Band had been invited to play in Camrose, and soon after, Camrose started up its own band. That band would welcome Prime Minister King to the community. On July 30, 1959, when the Northern Alberta Dairy Pool Plant opened, Premier E.C. Manning was in Camrose to open the plant, which at the time was the most modern dairy plant in all of Canada. In 1962, Lester B. Pearson visited the community on a cross-country tour and took part in a barbecue in his honour. At the time, he was the leader of the opposition, but soon enough he would be elected as Prime Minister, becoming one of Canada's greatest over the next few years. Notable Residents Scott Ferguson was born in Camrose on January 6, 1973, and would play for the Kamloops Blazers during the 1993-94 season, before signing a free agent contract with the Edmonton Oilers soon after. He would spend several seasons in the minor leagues before landing a regular job with the Oilers. Following the NHL lockout, he would sign with the Minnesota Wild, followed by time with the San Jose Sharks. Over the course of his career, he would play in 218 NHL games, recording 7 goals and 14 assists. Josh Green was born in Camrose on November 16, 1977, and he would be drafted in the second round by the Los Angeles Kings in 1996. He would be traded to the New York Islanders in 1999, and then to the Edmonton Oilers in the 2000 entry draft. With the Oilers during those two seasons, he would play 81 games and record 10 goals and 7 assists. He would then play for the Calgary Flames, New York Rangers, Vancouver Canucks, Anaheim Ducks, and once more with the Oilers. Over the course of his career, he would play in 341 NHL games, recording 36 goals and 40 assists. Kenneth Iverson was born on December 17, 1920 in Camrose, and after a stint in the Canadian Army and the Royal Canadian Air Force during the Second World War, he would earn a degree at Queen's University and then Harvard and begin working for several computer companies. He would develop the programming language APL, and he was honoured with the Turing Award for his pioneering effort in programming languages and mathematical notations. He would pass away on October 19, 2004 in Toronto. 
The Rose City. The community today is known as the Rose City. The name comes from the fact that there are a large amount of wild roses that grow in the surrounding parkland. In 1995, the Camrose Rose was developed to withstand the Alberta climate and was introduced to the city by Jerry Toomey, who bred and patented the rose to honour the place of his birth. Toomey was well known in the world of plant breeders, and he created a pure white gladiolia that received the world's most beautiful glad award at the 1939 World's Fair, and he would eventually amass the world's largest private collection of Inuit carvings, which he donated to the Winnipeg Art Gallery before passing in 2008. Here's Mayor Norm Mayer. That was adopted as a uh, slogan uh, with the rose being a uh, emblem from the city of Cameras for years. But then the rose was adopted as the emblem for the city of Camrose, and that just carried on for years. And uh, it's still used some, although the people have tried to change the slogan a little bit more for a development point of view with the stages set. But uh, lots of people still refer to it as the Rose City because that's kind of history. What could you expect on a visit to Camrose? Uh, I think you would expect to have a great shopping experience in our downtown location, as well as the uh, west part of Cameras where we have uh, the, the uh, independent stores, uh, the box stores. But we still have a very vibrant uh, downtown Camrose, very unique shops. Some of them are, we have uh, buses that will come from Edmonton from time to time to basically shop in the, the dress shops and the shoe stores. So it's a, an attraction, uh, wonderful merchandise and wonderful service. And it provides the, uh, again, I guess, rounding out the lifestyle that, that we have here and people come to enjoy it. So not only from that point of view, you could come down for entertaining shows, depending what your taste is, whether it be Big Valley, whether it be uh, some other type of uh, performance being put on at the Bailey or the Lougheed, uh, the choice would be yours. Uh, Chamber of Commerce is very active here and uh, providing any assistance that people need in, in putting together a program if they wish to come to Camrose. Uh, tourist is, Camrose Tourism is very positive in their promotions to have people come and shop in the community. And as I say, it is a good shopping area where we attract from a large area as far east as and even across the Saskatchewan border uh, because we don't have a sales tax here. So it, it has an attraction that way too. But it, it's just all around good facilities in that area. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Canadian History X and our look at the community of Camrose. If you did, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history and all my podcast episodes on my website. Go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast by going to Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.